Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. All right, uh, so today I'm going to talk about this. Uh, the first couple of classes, the first couple of lectures, were things that I have a, a genuine interest in. I'm really interested in Roman Empire, I uh, love that kind of stuff. Medieval stuff I don't know a lot about, other than, you know, Monty Python movies and perhaps there were dragons. Um, this kind of stuff, I read a lot of this stuff as an undergrad. I took a political philosophy class. I took an intro philosophy class. Uh, I took a course like this. So I've run into a lot of stuff like this before. So it shouldn't surprise, uh, sorry, it, 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 for me this is, I find this stuff a little more compelling. And because we're getting closer to our time period, you're gonna recognize people's ways of thinking. The first couple were a little hard to recognize people's ways of thinking, right? Like, you know, it's, I don't know, some of that stuff about uh, uh, inner illumination and the idea that, well, that means God's running all your thoughts is a pretty foreign concept to a modern 21st century person. A lot of the things we're going to talk about today aren't. So we're going to talk about rationalism and empiricism. So rationalism is derived from the Latin word ratio. Uh, ratio, actually, which means to reason. So we're talking about reasoning. Okay. It emphasizes the following things. A priori knowledge. So it's knowledge you already have. Okay? It's knowledge you already have. So if we were to put this in modern terms, we would say, for example, that you have knowledge of space and time. If we were to put this in modern evolutionary psychology terms, we would say we have a timing module and a spatial module. A rationalist in the 1600s wouldn't have said that, but it's that kind of thing. So it's a priori knowledge. And it's an active mind, okay? It's an active mind, it's not a passive mind. The mind is active and sensory input The mind acts on sensory input. So sensory input doesn't just write on the blank slate. Sensory input is acted upon by the mind. Okay? So learning then is an active phenomenon to a rationalist. Okay? So Rationalists use deductive arguments and they use logic to demonstrate the premise of an argument and provide definitive grounds for a conclusion. If this, then this. Right? So you see here that a rationalist then, someone who has a rationalist philosopher, says that we have inborn qualities, that the mind has certain standard equipment, 
that it, it comes with, and then there's other things that then no one's denying the experience that there's experience. That would be ridiculous. Probably are people that think that, but they'd be idiots. Um, but it's saying that we have inborn qualities. Okay. Does that make sense? I don't mean does it make sense theoretically. I mean does just the idea make sense. Okay, good. So it's, it's, this isn't hard to understand, but when you first see rationalism, curses, what do these things mean? So Descartes was actually a rationalist, and I'm not, a, as you know, a big Descartes guy, and you probably could guess I'm a rationalist. So how do I square that circle? Well, there's Descartes. Um, he was, there's his dates, no one cares if you know them. You can note that he died pretty young, 54. Descartes lived kind of hard a little bit. So he had mathematical approaches to everything. Descartes was, see the thing is, educated people back then, they, as I said the other day, they, they, they studied everything. Because you could. Also, because there wasn't so much specialization. So, you know Cartesian coordinates, right? X and Y, that's named after him. He invented that, okay? So those of you who didn't like all the stuff on regression in 3256, you can blame Descartes indirectly. Um, so his mathematical approach, he had a mathematical approach to everything because he was at his heart probably a mathematician. Okay? So Descartes had four parts to his method to understanding anything. The first part is never under, accept anything as being true unless it's a clear, distinct, and it's immune from doubt. So in other words, I want to see it over and over again. I, I, I like that. Divide all difficulties into as many parts as possible. So if you're going to solve a problem, divide it up. This is also a sensible approach. I think most of us eventually learn that that's the way to handle anything, any schoolwork, for example. I mean, this is where I think about my job. When I think, oh my God, I've got to teach a new course that I haven't taught in years. Divide it up into small parts. Okay, first I will make up a course outline and figure out how I will grade people. Next, I will make up lectures. I will make up one a day. That's how this course came about. I will also steal lots of Paul's slides. It's a good system, it works. I will make them more interesting and have jokes. So, that are only for me. What is this action I'm doing? So, this is actually a pretty sensible way to do things. And he, when he says that this is his approach, he also says the mind does this, or he was at the soul, does this. So the easiest and simplest elements, like I said, I can make up a course outline. I've, I've made up a lot of those. So when I'm thinking about doing, figuring this course out, made up a course outline. It's the easiest thing to do. Have all the dates listed, copy and paste all my contact information and the thing about plagiarism. That's easy. Then figure out what's the order of things, right? And proceed to the complex stuff. The complex, most complex things actually is, is, is uh, figuring out what to put in each lecture. And doing a lot of weird background reading that I haven't done in a long time. One can do things by the seat of one's pants, but that is not a good approach.
when I was a younger man. See, I, I make up all my classes the summer before the term starts. That's, so I don't have to do the thing where I'm making up lectures during the term, because that's a nightmare. And when you're first starting your career, some of you probably will become academics and you get your first job and you're like 30 years old and you're finally making an actual living. And then you realize, I'm 10 minutes ahead of the class. And you do a lot of this. I don't know the answer to that, why don't you look that up? Oh, you do a lot of that. Because you don't know. Because <laughs> you're not ahead. So eventually you do it the way I've done it now, which is to do everything in advance, start with the easy stuff, go to the simplest stuff, and keep complete notes and comprehensive reviews so nothing is admitted. It's a scientific approach before science is invented. That's what's neat about this. So Descartes said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write everything down that I do. And those of you in here who are in the thesis class um, will find that that's a very good thing to do. And the two of you in here who are my students, uh, I will make you do this. <laughs> what, I, what I want you to do is write everything down that you're going to do every day so you don't screw it up. Because you're also going to find on your on your first day, you go in, and you start to run your experiment, and then you go, I have it all written down, I'm going to do this, 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 oh, that doesn't work. So you change it. Right? But if you keep these careful notes, you'll know where you made a mistake, or you'll know where you tripped up. And I think most of us will tell you to do something like that. So this is a pretty good system. Now, Descartes argued that the mind-body interaction and the only animal with a mind is us takes place in the pineal gland. <laughs> That's ridiculous. But I mean, we can laugh at him, but no one's going to talk about us in 500 years. But they'll still be talking about Descartes. So we can still laugh at him. It's a ridiculous notion. And it's partly because he couldn't find pineal glands in other animals, which they have, by the way. He just didn't know where to look. It should also be noted that uh, people are really excited about pineal glands in, quote, alternative medicine circles. I take colonial silver to uh, cleanse my pineal gland. Don't. As soon as someone says pineal gland, walk away like this. The next thing they're going to do is tell you something else kind of crazy. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, and then try to get your money. Even if they're not trying to, they're going to try to get you to sign up for something. And they're going to talk about energy So, <laughs> this, is, this is a little bit sarcastic. <laughs> These are actually testable hypotheses, but we wouldn't test them today. Um, muscles are literally, and he said this, like he wasn't kidding, he wasn't being metaphorical here, he said that muscles are inflated with animal spirits. Sure, that makes sense. I don't know how we test this, actually, because I don't know how you, how you measure spirits, right? But Descartes, one of the neat things about Descartes is he would say, I don't know how you would do this, but we'll eventually be able to find that animal spirits are inflating muscles, that they're basically bags that get inflated by animal spirits. So when he saw the unknown, he didn't say, I don't, God, well, we're screwed, my whole system. He just said, I don't know the answer to this. Someday someone can figure this out. 
And of course, today we would go, it's ridiculous. Rene, what are you thinking? See, once you buy into animal spirits, you've got to explain where they come from. And of course, they're tied to the ventricles of the brain, which the ancient Egyptians also thought. They thought it till like 6,000 years ago. He thought this five, four, 450 years ago. That's a little bit different. The ancient Egyptians were really into animal spirits. That was their thing. It fit with their religion, a lot of other things. And the cool thing is we know that now because we've, when I say we, I had nothing to do with this. Humans figured out how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs, right? Which is pretty crazy. Walking like Egyptians. It's amazing that anybody gets the reference to a song that's 30 years old from when I was like, you're It's great. Nerves have sensory and motor functions. Now, he said nerves have both sensory and motor functions. Now, we know that's wrong. We know there are sensory neurons and motor neurons. He didn't know there were neurons because there weren't microscopes. So we can give him some credit here. Him saying that nerves have sensory and motor functions because, in fact, when you take a look at your, I mean, the classic example here is always that I like is your ulnar nerve, right? Right there? Because if you do it right, if I can, there it goes. I felt that and it made my finger move. Sensory motor, right? So that's actually a pretty good observational thing. It's wrong, but he's like, I think this is true. People who know more about these kind of things, well, he wouldn't have said that. Descartes was exceedingly full of himself. But people will be able to test this in the future. Okay, so let's see, wrong, 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 though close to right. Close to right. He also said nervous transmissions are extremely fast. That can be tested, and it's not true. I mean, unless you think of extremely fast as being 100 meters a second, which isn't that fast compared to light. You know, light's traveling at 300,000 kilometers a second. Right? That's speed light. Speed of nervous transmission within a neuron is 100 meters per second. It's closer to it's closer to 10 than 100 between neurons. Like, it's amazing how slow our nervous system actually is. But because it's massively parallel, right? Because it's massively parallel, it seems like things are happening instantaneously. And it still boggles, it really should blow you away that that kind of thing happens. And it always does for me, watching any sports, that those decisions are being made before, you know, sometimes half, literally, in the nervous system, half a second before the movement. That's mind-boggling to me. You know, I watched an exhibition hockey game last night because I'm just starved for hockey. So I watched Montreal play New Jersey last night and uh, the goalie they have, uh, a kid, well, he's like 20, uh, Caden Primo. And he made a save that was like very Carey Price-like, actually. Dove across and stuff the puck. And I thought, and after being amazed by this awesome saving, yay, the future. It's like, his nervous system made that decision like, oh, 400, four, you know, four tenths of a second before he actually did it. And the, oh, and by the way, the two guys in the two on one, they were making all the, their nervous systems were making those decisions before that. 
but it's all parallel, so it seems like it's instantaneous. So we know he's wrong on this. But you can also see where he'd think that because it feels instantaneous, doesn't it? It feels like everything we do just happens. Okay. So that's Descartes. A little more about him. This is the classic picture of Descartes. The mind-body thing's silly. The mind being separate from the body is silly. But it makes sense at that time. I can sit here and, and talk about how ridiculous the notion is, because it is ridiculous. Just like it's ridiculous that our muscles are inflated by animal spirits. It's ridiculous. But it makes some sense experientially, right? It feels like our mind is separate from our body. It feels like it's a product of our nervous system, but when you don't know that what we know today, I guess it makes some sense. The pale gland thing is actually fun. I find it actually just hilariously funny that the idea, well, everything just happens in this little tiny gland. That's where your mind is. That's ridiculous, right? And I've mentioned this before, when you're reading his stuff, you have to realize a lot of times when he says soul, he means mind. Okay? So a lot of the times when he's talking about a soul, he means his, he means your mind. He doesn't mean your immortal Catholic soul. Okay? And he looks like a guy who would wear a ridiculous hat, just somehow, don't you think? He does do the one eyebrow raise thing pretty well. You know, that's good. So Mr. Spock eyebrow from Star Trek, it's got that going. Okay, so that's rationalism. Empiricism is the enemy of rationalism. Empiricism, well, you look at the term experience. Empiric yeah, okay, so that's, it's, empiricists have a few common notions. One of them is a posteriori knowledge. That means that all knowledge comes after you experience something. Rationalists believe in a priori knowledge. That's it. Knowledge, there's only knowledge there, and then you, and then other things happen, and then they operate on the sensory input, whereas an empiricist says, or sorry, yeah, an empiricist says, all knowledge comes after you experience something. And some knowledge must. Yes? I mean, I wasn't born with the ability to speak English. I learned English. So that makes some sense. One could ask the empiricist, a radical empiricist, however, why did I learn to speak language at all? Why do all humans learn to speak languages? Or, giant, vast majority, even people who can't speak can learn sign language. Hmm. The mind is passive. It responds to sensory input. It's not an active thing like we have in the rationalist system. It's a passive thing. Experience is writing on the mind. Okay. And the best method of knowledge here is it's not deduction, it's induction. If it was like that yesterday, it'll be like that today. It was 
like that yesterday, it'll be like that today. That's induction. The sun rose yesterday, so it'll rise today. Here's a thought experiment. And it's a challenge to an empiricist view. Here's a thought experiment. Let's say I have a ball in my pocket, like a little, you know, about that big. And it's green. And I, t I take it out and I look at it, it's green. I put it back in my pocket. I take it out, I look at it, it's green. I put it back in my pocket. I do that a thousand times. We would all probably say, chances are when I go to a thousand and one, it's going to be green. What if I have it programmed in such a way that on, what's the date today? 17th. On September 17th, 2019, it's blue. <coughs> you can probably actually make something like that nowadays. It wouldn't be that hard. It's LEDs, right? So, so in fact, it's not a green ball. It's a green ball. It's blue and green. It's, it's green most of the time until September 19th, then, or when it's 17th, then it's blue. Your induction failed you. So there is a problem, that's called the problem with induction. That it, just because something's always been that way doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. Okay. Now, I'm not gonna, just as much as I made fun of Descartes, even though I call myself more rationalist than empiricist, I will make fun of these guys too. However, Francis Bacon, we talked to him the other day, he talked about uh, the problem of knowledge and pioneered the scientific method. Like, he basically invents science. Him and, we're going to give Newton some credit here, but I think Bacon is probably the most important person. Now, other cultures have come up with similar methods. They aren't as codified, is what it is. People have done trial and error kind of things forever. It's not like everybody else was just walking around not knowing what to do until a white man figured it out. But... So people are doing things like trial and error, see if this works. People did engineering, that's not science, engineering is an application of knowledge. So all over the world, people had figured things out. It wasn't like everybody else was stupid, and Bacon said, you know what? No, it didn't work that way. But a couple things, first of all, psychology is a, is a, is a pretty Western thing, so thinking about Western thought makes sense. And secondly, um, Bacon really codifies this stuff, okay? So he described four, he called the four idols. I like this. I like this. It's, it's got a, it just sounds nice. We wouldn't use these terms today, but they sound nice. He talked about the idols of the tribe. Those are the limits of the human intellectual apparatus. In other words, there are certain things we just can't understand. Okay? We don't have the capacity to understand them. The next one is the Isle of the Cave. That's the prejudices or preferred theories that blind us, blind joke, it's offensive, that blind us to alternative explanations. He recognized right away that in science and knowledge in general, we start to really like our own theories. 
We start to really like things, even if they aren't ours. We start to like things that, oh, I look at the world that way, so that's right. And in fact, I think we all recognize that in ourselves. We try to not do that. We try to be open-minded. Scientists try to be open-minded people. You're open-minded and skeptical in science, right? He said it's hard to be open-minded because you kind of get married to your ideas. You shouldn't be so open-minded that your brain falls out, but you have to be open-minded. And that's hard to do because humans do this. We have these we call the idols of the cave. The cave, in this case, is your idea, and it's keeping you in one place, looking in one direction. The idols of the marketplace are the nominal, is the nominal fallacy, basically. You know the nominal fallacy? That's when you name something, you've explained it. Okay, here's a, here's a statistic. Women make roughly, let's go with 75 cents on the dollar. It's a little higher than that, I think, but compared to men. Why? Why is that? A lot of people say sexism. It's like, no, you just named it. You may, have, well, may as well have called it Steve. Or purple crayon. You gave it a name. Explain the system that has done this. Explain how this has happened. That's an explanation. Saying sexism is not an explanation. It's shorthand, so if we all say, oh, what you mean is this, that's fine. But actually what you've done is just given it a name. That's a very powerful thing. The nominal fallacy is exceedingly powerful. Like we really believe a lot of times that if we've given something a name, well, we will explain that. But when I lived in, in Newfoundland, people often talked about um, why, were, why was our enrollment going down for people who uh, were local students? And people would say, out migration, which means people were leaving the province. And it's like, no, 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 you just, named, you just named it. People are leaving. Can you please explain why people are leaving? Do that, and we can start having a discussion. Right? Very powerful, and we fall for it, and I'm, I'm sure I do too, all the freaking time. And finally, idols of the theater. We tend to accept the claims of authorities. That's like, you know, it's theatrical. Someone who's important says something, you go, oh, well, he said it. Now, accepting what an expert says on something is good, but believing everything an expert says is not good, and believing what somebody who's an expert in one field says about something else is bad, right? I am an expert in a couple of things, like an actual world-level expert. I'm not saying anything fancy but myself. We all are. I mean, that's pretty awesome. But then you compare that to, this is the worst thing about working in a university. I work with a bunch of know-it-alls. No, we all are. We're all know-it-alls. And this especially happens when you're younger or you're very full of yourself. Usually what happens is someone pulls you aside and says, you know that thing? You don't know anything about that. And you go, oh shit, you're right. I know about animal cognition. That's got nothing to do with the universe and the market. Probably not an expert. 
I can say I think it's silly or something, but I shouldn't really act like I know what it is. Okay. Or whatever. So you see that you see that in universities a lot in meetings. You'll see people say, blah, 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 but you're thinking, who the hell are you? Yes, you're really a good X. You clearly know more about X than I do. But that doesn't give you any. And the worst thing is because we're all trained in or by experience, public speaking and argument persuasiveness, we can actually bullshit better than anybody. So we're really good, and you gotta really watch yourself when you're in university meetings, which you guys aren't, God, you're lucky. I'm certain we don't have souls, but it's soul draining going to meetings. Makes me think we might have souls, because I feel my soul coming out of my body. And this happens, and we all do it, by the way. I mean, I, I'm as guilty as anybody else. You try to stop yourself. Um, if you know a lot about Men are horrible this way, generally, about everything. But you ever been sitting around a bunch of guys watching sports that they don't know anything about? I mean, the Olympics every four years? <laughs> so suddenly you become an expert in all sports. Like you're watching field hockey for 20 minutes and you're going, and at first you're like, this, what a weird, this is weird hockey. Oh, now I know everything about it. I can't understand why they aren't doing blah, and you're like, I, how, why am I talking like this? It's like watching college football from the States on January 1st only. People sitting around opining about what's happening in the Rose Bowl. They don't know anything about any of these teams. Happens all the time, right? Or if you're in a more, uh, not as popular a sport, not one of the big four, like if you're in wrestling, I bet you probably get told things by people. You're going, no, that's not really, I can't, I'm not allowed actually to kick the guy in the face. That's MMA. That would get me probably kicked out of things and also maybe university. So guys are horrible about sports that way. So that's, that's a great example. That's, that's going to be my great example. It's not going to be university professors. It's just going to be the men are idiots. That's a good starting point, right? So there's Bacon. Um, he emphasized uh, sense experience in the search for knowledge. So let stuff happen to you. Science is empirical, relying on your senses. So that makes a great deal of sense. He advocated the gathering of observations from a wide variety of sources. Oh, that sounds a lot like, see, this is science. He's inventing science and codifying it, codifying it. This is the key thing, in fact. I, he says, Pre present your ideas to groups of researchers. He's talking about an early form of peer review. He's talking about conferences and journals, things that didn't exist yet. And he's like, what we should do, what we should do, he has a goal, he's more, more, more like, okay, this. Because we should get all together, some scientists together, and some sort of, they would confer, we'll call it a conference. It's my bacon impression. Okay. This sounds exceedingly familiar, right? Because he's inventing science, basically. So John Locke, um, I've told you, we've heard a lot about Locke in the past from me, so I'm not gonna go into this too much, but he talked about the white mind is a white paper. He did not say tabula rasa, he said white paper because he wrote in English, he did not write in Latin. Most academics, uh, philosophers, learned people wrote in Latin. He didn't. Like, people were starting to not write in Latin at the same time he was not the first person not to write in Latin. 
Um, he thought all knowledge is learned through experience. That's an exceedingly radical position. All knowledge comes from experience. Right? Because think about this. At this time, we have divine right of Cain still. Yeah. At this time, we have you got your, you got your, you got your royalty, then below that you got your nobles, and below that you got your peasants. There's a middle class of people that are like lawyers and doctors, but most of them actually probably come from pretty noble backgrounds. And if you ask people why that is, they'd say, well, it's just a natural order of things. God picks the king. It says on our coins, I've pointed this out if you've taken the course formerly known as right behavior from me. It says Elizabeth II, D.G. Regina, which means Diagratia Regina, which means by the grace of God, Queen. It actually says that on our money. That the Queen of Canada was picked by God. I doubt she believes that. I'd be quite surprised if she believed that. But it does, the divine right of kings is a, is a thing, or was a thing. So what he's saying is now they've got a better environment. And that's today we'd say, yeah, you know, I don't know, Prince Harry seems like a decent guy. But he had a pretty good environment. So he doesn't like the concept of innate ideas. Again, if, if, there's no, if there aren't innate ideas, then why is that the king and why is you the duke and the duchess of the earl of so-and-so? And why am I down here, I don't know, shoveling shit in your stables? That doesn't seem fair. This changes, because then he says, think, wait a second, if everybody, if it's all about environment, if it's all about experience, what if we educated everybody? What if we had compulsory education to a point? What if everybody went to school? Because then they'd all have some equality of, of education, of experience, and it would help everybody. It would help the country. It would help society. That's a radical idea. These are very radical ideas for this time. And, and Locke was radical. He encourages the idea of hardening. What does hardening mean? It means that you repeat things over and over and over until you get it. Okay? So that's, for example, I don't know what they do in school anymore. So I'm going to ask you guys. When you were in elementary school, did you have to do uh, 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 arithmetic? And I mean like repetitive arithmetic, until it was internalized. Yeah, so like you had a sheet that was handed out to you and you had five minutes to do as many as you could. Good, I'm glad they still do that. Okay, good. Now, Misaki, you, you were in Canada, did you in Japan? Yeah, good. Okay, good. Maybe the world isn't gonna fall apart. <laughs> but the notion is, like, when I say what's six and nine, you go 15. Like, you just know that. You don't have to go, <laughs> right? You just know it. There's something to be said for that, for making things second nature. So adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing numbers, all the, the multiplication facts up to 12 by 12, 12 times 12, right? That was a thing. We also didn't know the squares of numbers up to 25. So, you know, 24 squared is 576. 
Like we just hope we were, we were drilled into our heads. They also looked like former Israeli Prime Minister Goldemir. Just saying. Good Lord. They look dissimilar. Um, David Hume. He said that our experience is simply a chain of events. That sounds like classical and operating condition. The associative version. That's what he says. Causality and relationships, so this causes this, are simply the result of mental habits, in other words, repetition. So there's a Lockean thing here going on as well. Ourselves and our experiences are not as continuous as we think. In fact, our experiences can be broken down into smaller and smaller events. Associate learning, okay? So, these are radical empiricist positions. Okay. He studied emotions extensively. He was quite interested in emotions, and he, he, he liked the idea that logic was a tool of your emotions. So it's kind of a neat thought. He advocated for comparative studies in physical anatomy, including comparative studies between species, which is the, and the anatomy of the mind. Wait, did he just say that your mind had an anatomy? Yeah, he did. So he's kind of saying mind-body not necessarily separate. That's cool. And also, I now will say something about the thing on his head, in that picture, because it's a famous picture. What do you think it is? It's not a turban. First thing I thought it was a turban, but it's not. And then I went through all kinds of theories about how, why would he be wearing a turban? He's not from India. It would be crazy, like, it would be weird. You know what it is? It's a hat that he wore instead of wearing a wig in that picture. Because in that period, men didn't go out without wigs on. Or little wigs with a back, the stupid wig. This is him at home. This is casual dress. I don't have a wig on. I'm wearing a velvet hat. It's like a shower cap, basically. Except it's it's for it's an around-the-house hat. Because no one wants to see my hair because my hair is gross because I don't bathe that often because it's a long time ago. And I live in England. Other places, people are like people in India and, 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 and in Japan, they're smart enough to go, yeah, you have to shut up a bath every day. People in England are like, you know, it'll make you pretty sick if you have a bath. Probably should avoid baths. So yeah, it's just a hat. And I found this out through Daniel Dennett's Twitter account. <laughs> Daniel Dennett is a philosopher that I quite like. Daniel Dennett's a, a modern, like he's still a modern philosopher, and he uh, actually is selling these hats, which I think is great. Uh, and he's a, 
well-known, uh, where is he, Tufts, I think, University. He is a philosopher of psychology. He's a, he's a philosopher, about, he talks a lot about evolution. He wrote a great book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Um, and he's a noted uh, atheist. So he ticks all the Dave Broadbeck boxes. So um, I really quite like him, and I, his writing's great. Uh, and then one day on Twitter, he posted this picture of him wearing a ridiculous hat like that, that he was actually selling these hats. I don't know who was making them for him, but I think it's great. So it's a velvet cap that you would wear around the house when you're not wearing a wig. So we recognize some things the way people think, the way they dress, not as much. Okay, this leads to, not the hat, but empiricism, but the hat played a role. to the idea of utilitarianism. That's do the most possible good and the least possible harm. Okay? I like to think most of us live our lives that way. Okay? I think we try to do that. Or as Spock might say, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. So it's motivated practical problems like education and society. People are starting to, we're getting into the late 1700s, early 1800s. People are seeing that there's a lot of, not just stratification, but there's, there's people that are nasty poor living now in cities. It's like, we have to do something about this. So a great writer on this is uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. And as you can see, she died quite young. Um, she was an early pioneer, not only for utilitarianism, but for the idea of the emancipation of women. Um, these are ideas that today you would go, whoa, that's pretty modern. She said people, that men, women shouldn't be subservient to men, and part of her argument here was a utilitarian one. It was like, would you rather just have a trophy wife? Would you rather just have a Someone you trot around at social occasions, or would you have a companion? Somebody who is your people, somebody you can talk to, have a good time with. So he, she's she's saying, first of all, that's just correct, it's right, but also, even if you're a sexist jerk pig, wouldn't you rather have someone you could talk to? So that's pretty clever, right? Because she's saying, okay, be a jerk, but wouldn't you like to be a jerk with somebody who's interesting? So she's subverting. It's very smart. Um, she was kind of, she was a really interesting person. Um, she suggested that the differences between the genders, between sexes, lack, then she said sexes, she didn't say genders, um, resulted from a lack of opportunities for women. Not that women were inferior to men, which is what men thought. And a lot of, most women probably thought too, because that's what society was telling them. It's like, no, women just don't have any opportunities. What did women become? if they're not going to get married and sit around a house. They can become one of the things that she became, which was a lady's companion. What's a lady's companion? This is a noble person hires someone to hang out with them. This is a woman who's either not yet married or maybe widowed. Okay, what else is she? There's got to be a joke there, but I didn't have anything. Um, and you're paid to hang out. You live in the house, like you get it. It's a good, it's a, it's a good gig in a way. 
and that gig is you hang out in the house. You are a servant. You don't. You live in the house. You don't live in the servants' quarters. You eat meals with family. You hang out, and your job is to be interesting to talk to and hang out with. That's one of the things women can do. Oh, they can also be a governess for children, which is rich people need someone else to raise their children. She did that too. Like, women couldn't become doctors, lawyers, university professors. That wasn't a thing. Oh, that sounds kind of shitty. So she's like, this isn't right. Women don't have any chance. So she argues against essentialism, the idea that there's an essential difference, there's some qualitative difference between men and women in their intellect. So essentialism is the belief that essential, the essential nature, of, and it's not just about men and women, but I'm using an example here, uh, that men are qualitatively different from the essential nature of women. God damn, she was an interesting person. Her second daughter, both her kids were out of wedlock. Though she didn't get married twice, um, one of her kids was Mary Shelley, but Frankenstein. So that's already cool. She gives birth to the person who eventually becomes the mother of all horror fiction. That's pretty great. Uh, she went to France to live in post-revolutionary France, because she's like, well, women are going to be given a chance here because they've had a revolution. And then the National Assembly in France passes this thing saying, well, women should, the best thing a woman could be is a uh, companion for a man, help them out, and also uh, women should only be educated in like cooking and cleaning. And so she's kind of pissed off by that, because like, you can see this great revolution happening, and then you go, oh, right, it's all about my men. So, She writes a bunch of great stuff. She had it's fascinating life. She dies about 11 days after Mary Shelby is born, uh, and her husband writes this um, writes like a biography of her because he loved her. Uh, he was he was also the father of of anarchist philosophy. Like these were interesting people, and so he writes this book about her. Uh, and he's talking about how interesting she was and about how she had all these extramarital affairs and he went, well, okay. And had kids that weren't with people she was married to. Though the, Mary Shelley was like, that was, they got married because they were, she became pregnant. And he thought, I'm talking about what a great person she is. And everybody's like, oh yeah, that's great. She's a horrible whore. No one likes her. And then in the early, 1900s, people discover her, and a lot of people consider her the, the, the sort of the mother of uh, feminist philosophy. She's really something. She's really cool. She wants men and women to interact as equals. Novel idea. But again, the notion is, first of all, we are equal, but secondly, wouldn't it be more interesting if the other half of the population would be people you could talk to and have fun with? intellectually, uh, and all kinds of other ways, right? So, back to dead white men. James Mill argued for a mechanistic approach to the mind. 
Okay? He's a Scot. Uh, some really interesting things happening in Scotland at this time. Empiricism is really taking off, but so is associationism. Um, he was an advocate for education for the masses. So you're starting to see people say we should have education. We should be teaching everyone because it would be best for society. His son, J.S. Mill, shared this uh, sort of mechanical approach to education. Again, and this all comes from Locke, the idea of hardening ideas. So repetition, because it's associationism. But he thought the mind was more probabilistic than mechanical, which I think we would say today. Well, I'm sorry, I know we would say today. When you look at models, mathematical models, um, neural networks and stuff, they're all in the probability. He said a science of psychology was possible. A lot of these Scottish uh, philosophers start, the word psychology starts kind of creeping into their writing. He was interested in a science of the development of character. In other words, well, developmental psychology. That's cool. He totally, we would say today that he was one of the first male feminists. Because he said that women, well, we should take, he was a member of parliament in the UK. And, was it in the UK by then? It was, yeah. Um, he said women should, uh, Sorry, we should stop using the word man in laws. We should start using the word person. And that, of course, didn't pass because that was crazy. Um, he also suggested women be given the right to vote, which didn't happen in uh, the UK until 1917. You know that women didn't get the right to vote in Canada until like 1917. You know women didn't have the right to vote in Quebec provincial elections until 1944? That's a year, two years before my mom was born. In Quebec, actually. Things we take for granted now are pretty recent. So he would talk about empiricism, utilitarianism, and again, if you take an empirical view, the idea that men and women aren't equal is ridiculous, right? And he said societal, there are societal benefits to giving women opportunities. There are societal benefits to giving women, giving, giving women opportunities. So I love this too, because it's like, it's just the right thing to do, but it helps everyone. Right, it's a very clever sort of roundabout way to get people coming around to thinking that, you know, women are idiots. So there's a couple pictures. The nice thing is Johnston Mill, that's an actual photograph of him. He lived into the 18, the 1880s or something. That's an 1870. So there are photographs. He had to sit very still. This isn't a photo, this is a painting, but at least she looks like a normal person. She's the only philosopher ever to look normal. Right? She just looks like somebody you might run into. The clothes are a bit different, but beyond that, she could be walking down the hall. If you walk down the hall, you go, dude something about your hair. Manuel Kant is not easy to understand. 
it's one of those things you read, and then you have to read the footnotes that are going along with it as you read it. German guy. He had a middle ground between empiricism and rationalism. Um, knowledge begins with sensory experience. So he's not, he's not being the ridiculous level of everything is all about reason. In fact, he wrote a classic treatise called The Critique of Pure Reason, which is so hard to follow. Well, it's hard to follow when you're 18 or 19, it's your first year of university. Maybe I can read it now. My God. What a nightmare. Um, the mind uses innate categories of understanding to make our experiences intelligible. Oh, you mean like space and time? Uh, yep. Excellent. He's an interactionist. Um, so he believes, like I say, I do, though I have a sort of rationalist bent to me, I wouldn't say there's no, there's no experience writing on this. So, I'd be Kantian if I knew anything. I'm an interactionist. I believe it. And as much as I believe, there's pretty damn fine evidence that we have innate categories. You know, we're born with certain things. Classic, one of my favorite things. 12-hour-old baby. You show him two stimuli. This one and this one. They look more at this one. Two dots on top and then one dot. Looks more like a face. They're, 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 they're detecting faces. You, you're built with that. You come out with that built in. Our ability to learn language, not a given language, but to learn human language is something that we are born with. Experience then says, oh, you're going to learn English or Japanese or whatever when you're young, and you, you know, you know, it just happens. So, humans are caught between tension between heteronomy, which is government from the outside, that means, it's government, it means what governs you, what changes, what, what controls your behavior. It doesn't mean your actual government. And autonomy, and that's self-government, that's the idea of you doing things. That's motivations coming from within. We might say extrinsic and intrinsic motivation today, something to that effect. So self-government, that's our ability to do things, is what allows us to act in a moral manner. To do the right thing is, comes from, in, from inside, not from outside. Okay. And I end with Kant because it's, it's the closest thing to the way we think now. If you sat down with Immanuel Kant and explained to him the kind of results we get in psychology and the way we approach psychology now, he would be in agreement with it. He wouldn't have an issue. Because he never said there's no experience that's playing a role. But he also says we also have inborn faculties. Right? And the idea that we have no inborn faculties is ridiculous. The idea that it's all inborn faculties is ridiculous. Extreme ideas as a rule are ridiculous. Okay? 
almost always it's something in the middle. That's just how the world works, right? So I think Kant would, if you had him in front of him, first you'd have to learn to speak German. So that'd be, you gotta do that for a while. But then once you've explained to him after we get him here with a time machine, so we've also got to invent a time machine. But once we've done all that, I think if he sat in on a, on a lecture in intro psych, he'd be amazed at the stuff we now know about the brain. But when he got to the part of the genetics lecture, when I tell you that it's trying to determine how much of a, a characteristic is due to its length and how much it's due to its width is like, or sorry, a characteristic of genes environment is like a field and its length and its width, he would say, that's really good. Did you come up with that? And I'd say, it was a guy named Donald Hemp. He isn't born way after he died. He'd like that. He'd, he'd like a lot of the stuff that we see today. He wouldn't be surprised by it. He would be, and he was also apparently not a really nice guy, so apparently he'd go, well, of course I'm right, because I'm awesome. All right. So, some conclusions about this stuff. The empiricists are very influential. As much as radical empiricists, many of were, were completely all on a level playing field at birth, it's crazy. Um, they, the influence they have on looking at associationism is huge. The influence they have on looking at the contents of the mind is huge. We can't downplay it. Um, so there's no way we can say it wasn't important, their approach. Um, but Kant's approach is probably the closest thing to how people actually think today, most of us. I think if you asked everyone in our department, is it just experience or is it just inborn qualities, we'd look at you like, oh, come on, what kind of question is that? What grade are you in? Have you not been paying attention for the last four years? Come on, it's got to be some combination of the two, which is what conscious. Questions? You got none?
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures in Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.